Blog Talk Radio. Ghostbusters week tonight on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. Uh, yesterday we reviewed the movie for almost three freaking hours. Oof. <laughs> I love Robert Winfrey to death. Love him like a brother. But that was a one. No review should last three hours. Nothing. <laughs> Never. Um, we had fun though. We uh, we spent a lot of time um, talking about the movie, and then we spent a lot more time <laughs> talking about the money. And then even more time talking about the reviewers. Uh, so we are wrapping up Ghostbusters week by, look, by going back tonight on Long Road to Ruin and looking at the originals. Ghostbusters 1984, Ghostbusters 2, which came out five years later. And then um, Sean in particular is going to get into the 2009 uh, action-adventure video game based on the Ghostbusters media franchise. That's what Wikipedia tells me it is. Ghostbusters the video game. Um, which is, for all intents and purposes, the spiritual uh, third part of the trilogy. Before I bring Sean on tonight, uh, I just wanted a few words about about the Ghostbusters franchise. People understand where I'm coming from with this. I I, I love Ghostbusters. I my my dad and I uh, we we were not taken to the ball game kind of a family. We were go to the movies kind of a family and. Uh, one of my one of my most vivid, most pleasant memories as a child is my father taking me and a friend of mine to go see Ghostbusters. It's the most. It's one of the movies aside from the movie Spaceballs that I quote constantly. I today I handed somebody something and I said, "Egon, your mucus." I have I, earlier this week I called Robert Cooper a bad monkey. Okay, because he forgot to upload the music for Metal Hammer of Doom. Uh, my wife sat through, she, I don't think she'd ever seen Ghostbusters, and she sat through a viewing of it with me, and she turned to me and she said, holy Christ, half the shit you say comes from Ghostbusters. So to say that it had a, a bit of an effect on me would be a gross understatement. Um, I don't feel any ownership of the movies, and so I wasn't one of these people who went crazy when I found out it was being remade, after all. Once you go through the Star Wars prequels, it changes you. It changes you, man. So um, I'm live and let live in a, with a lot of things in this world. And I thought if Sony wanted to remake Ghostbusters with, you know, with all women or all dogs or four vacuums, who gives a shit? I don't. 
you know, live and let live. And I hope a whole new generation of people are into it. God knows my daughter got a kick out of Kate McKinnon uh, in the new one. So it's all good here. Um, but that doesn't mean I didn't, I don't love the original. Uh, by the same token, does the original have some problems? Yeah, it does. And that's what we talk about on this show, folks. The good, the bad, and the ugly of film craft. Um, so tonight, I'm going to use my part of the show to break down the narrative of the first two ghost, uh, the, the two Ghostbusters films, what worked, what didn't work, talk a little bit about the performances. And, uh, and I say all this with the idea that no film is perfect, even a beloved film. So for those of you who think Ghostbusters is this monumental sacred text uh, <laughs> that, that, that can never be sullied and it was perfect in its inception, get a hold of yourself, Junior. It, it really isn't. There are some issues here. And speaking of issues, here's a man who has none. He's perfect. He walks on water. Ladies and gentlemen, from heaven, it's, from heaven himself, itself, Sean Comer, how do you do, sir? Speaking of it, my God, Mark, I hope the Coyotes make hundreds of saves half, this, half that night this next season. They do. We just might make the promised land after all. <laughs> How you doing tonight? Nice catch. Hi, everybody. I'm Sean. You're not. And welcome to a show about a franchise that I honestly, sincerely hope that goes or above that I never have to hear about until it's time to release the goddamn sequel. Oh, I'm about ain't... Ghostbusters. I am about ghostbustered out at this point. Um, before we do, though, uh, yeah, as long as we're kind of freshly on the topic of the new movie, we got to talk about that a little bit. Uh, specifically, not so much about the movie itself, but, man, have I got some issues with the way this has been covered. Uh, but, Mark, you're obviously pretty over-the-top happy with the movie. Um, like ridiculously, arguably, pro- arguably, probably more so than anybody else I know who's seen it. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to stress, and, I, I, and among other things, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say I wouldn't say over the top happy. I would say I'm very forgiving of what is a flawed movie. Um, you know, I liked it. I was entertained. Uh, that's not the way you came across on Facebook after you got out of it. <laughs> um, but, and I, I want to stress this because I've had to make this clear to a number of people in terms of my ambivalent kind of reception toward the movie hitting theaters. I want you all to get real, real close to your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever you may be listening to this on, screw your earbuds in a little bit tighter, take your shitty $250 Beats by Dre headphones that you overpaid for by about 245 bucks, press them real tight around your ear holes because I want to make sure this is understood. I don't give a single begotten shit whether anybody likes this movie or not. I don't mean that in a vindictive way. I mean that in the most literal sense. I have no intention of seeing it. I don't care except that I hope that everybody who paid for it enjoyed it. Okay? 
are we good on that? Don't call me a killjoy. Don't call me a party pooper because I don't mean that in a vindictive sense. I mean, I don't give a fuck. Not one single solitary fuck. If you liked it, great. If you didn't like it, find it in your heart to not be an asshole about it to the people who did enjoy it. You know who you are. That being said, I've got some problems with the way this movie has been covered. Um, There's this weird disparity between the way I've seen reviews presented in print media, particularly certain very geek-oriented outlets, and the way reviews have been presented on YouTube. Um, And I realize that there are a lot of people, particularly those who are perhaps uh, of a bit of an older generation than myself, who for some reason or another still look down on YouTube as being just this empty, vapid cesspool of social media with nothing redeeming to offer in its content. And I say thee nay. That is not YouTube. You're thinking of Twitter. That's Twitter you're thinking of. Twitter and possibly 4chan. Um, But YouTube, I have to give some credit to because after the movie came out, I took it upon myself, again, not caring about spoilers because no intention of spending a dime on the movie anyway, I went and checked out the reviews that started streaming out by some of the critics and pundits and personalities that I trust the most. And I tried to watch about as broad, as broad a swath of them as I can, not just the ones that I like, but some other ones that I wasn't as familiar with. Uh, and resoundingly, right across the board, they all said they all fell you almost entirely, almost exclusively, within about the exact same range of deeming the movie somewhere between not good and average. Just, just you know, you know, and then just kind of very fairly on both sides, acknowledging both the new movie's weaknesses and its stronger points, of which it had several. And they almost all said the exact same things. Uh, they acknowledged that Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones were both outstanding, um, sur- surprisingly so, according to most of them. Uh, There was some disappointment that it didn't seem like uh, Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy uh, necessarily shined as well as they did previously. But they all acknowledged that, almost right across the board, that they had all done some great work together prior to this. Uh, In terms of its failings, again, it was almost the the same right across the board. Uh, They said... The humor wasn't exact wasn't exactly memorable. Uh, they almost all said there were only about two or three real uh, major laugh lines throughout the entire movie. 
um, felt the special effects sometimes came off okay, sometimes came off as a bit much. Lots of comparisons to to uh, Eddie Murphy's Eddie Murphy's The Haunted House or The Haunted Mansion. <laughs> that was a real popular comparison. Um, pretty much everybody seemed roundly annoyed with Chris Hemsworth, which is unfortunate because I like the big guy. Uh, just about everybody found the cameos to all be disappointing, unnecessary fan service that didn't really add anything. Although a couple people did say that, spoilers, um, Bill Murray getting knocked out a window to his death was both kind of awkward and funny. But, oh, and, oh, and um, I would also add that, uh, yeah, I did watch, since the subject is going to come up because of this movie, of course it is, uh, the couple of female reviewers that I listened to, uh, namely Comic Book Girl 19, uh, my good friend Allison Pregler, who did, a uh, Midnight Screenings review, uh, fresh out of the movie alongside uh, Brad Jones. And uh, Allison also passed along to me uh, Lindsay Ellis' thoughts on it on Twitter. We're pretty much all that it was pretty warmly received. They thought it was all right. Uh, and it, to be fair, along the gender lines, the same was, could be said of most of the male reviewers. Uh, Brad Jones didn't really like it. Uh, Doug and Rob Walker were both, well, I mean, Rob was Rob. Rob's always a little harder on movies than Doug is. Um, But they were pretty fair and objective about it, I thought. Um, uh, Andre Blacknerd was, again, firmly in the camp that it was average. It was forgettable. It was see it once and you probably won't have, you'll be glad, you, you might be glad you saw it, but you won't have any desire to see it again. Uh, who else? Uh, oh, Chris Stuckman. Uh, he was, uh, he, again, he was fair. He was very mild on it. Uh, about the only real over-the-top negative review that just went really out of its way to just be pretty vile and hateful about it was Angry Joe, which I attribute in part to the fact that it's Angry Joe. <laughs> Isn't that kind of his gimmick? What, I'm sorry? Isn't that kind of his gimmick? It is. But, I mean, he's... He, he can be very informational and very, and very thoughtful in how he critiques something, but... And, and he's more often than not really pretty fair when it comes to his movie movie reviews. But he's naturally a very kind of fiery, charismatic guy. So, yeah, he just spent right around an hour <laughs> with his buddies just going off on it. Um, I got to swallow some bile to admit this, but I was actually kind of hoping that by the time we would hit the air tonight that uh, Noah Antweiler would have maybe decided to to do a vlog about it because for as much as I may personally loathe the man... Uh, he's capable of sometimes making some good points and critique when he wants to. That's the YouTube side of it. And everything is just presented pretty much as here's, as here's my review. Uh, nothing really baiting to lead in 
to lead into it. Just click on it. Here you go. Well, okay, I stand corrected. Almost entirely because <laughs> Joe was pretty clear on Twitter after getting out and before shoot before shooting the review that he was going to absolutely fucking tear into it. Uh, the print reviews have been another story. And it shouldn't surprise me, but allow me to explain something. I've, I've heard this before when I brought up issues with an article by way of my Facebook account or my Twitter, and that is that as a journalist, I look at a story as a whole because you're taught in journalism school that everything is supposed to feed into the overall presentation of the material. That includes the accompanying image you choose, includes obviously the story itself, anything you link to, the infographics, but arguably most importantly of all is the headline. And what really disappoints me is, and I saw this on The Verge, I saw it on Ars Technica, fuck knows, Nerdist, for as positive as they try to come off as being, has been doing this for months and just been coming off as really passive-aggressive and, and almost antagonistic the entire way. Every headline, and then it usually follows into the reviews itself, of course, uh, just comes across with this tone of, suck it, haters, Ghostbusters is awesome. <laughs> Stick it in your ghetto, I'm exaggerating that slightly. slightly. But, but it's just it's this, this combative tone that continues to just kind of exaggerate what, well, I'll even say Sony and Paul Feig have been feeding very shrewdly and very and and to great success over the last about six months or so. And that is taking a noisy bunch of people who objected very loudly to having an all-female cast and just... There, there's no other way to put it. They didn't so much so much the trolls as just lay a grand beast before them. It's just inviting them. It, it's the cheapest, most clickbaity presentation. And unfortunately, there's a problem with that. And that's the fact that while over on YouTube, I think you'll find the most earnest, agenda-free reviews of the movie... Unfortunately, for all the talk that print is dying and uh, it's rapidly becoming becoming an inferior choice in a lot of people's eyes, uh, YouTube and hey, and podcasts, um, is that there's still a lot of outlets out there who carry a lot of sway. And this is going to have, and I think it's already having, a very nasty fallout. And no, I'm, I, I'm not going to count the, the Twitter banning of Breitbart editor uh, Milo Yami Masha Hula Bula Bora Bora or whatever the fuck his last name is. I can't pronounce it. Um, because while 
Well, his, his racially well, based, based, based attacks on Leslie Jones, Jones were absolutely horrible and, abs- and absolutely, absolutely beyond the fence. Um, this was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, the, he's got a long history of this kind of thing, and what it comes down to is, in this particular instance, he timed this rant very unwisely when Twitter has already been under fire for years for failing to really adequately police hate speech among their users. And now he's going and creating this, uh, this absolute high motherfucker of a shitstorm maelstrom right when Twitter is looking for someone to buy Yeah, obviously his head was going up on a pike for this. Twitter could not be afforded to be. Yeah, he made it look weak. Sorry, somebody tried to beat in on me while I was talking. Thanks, Jeremy. And it threw my rhythm off a little bit. But... The fact is, the fact is, fallout. As a number of people have pointed out already, this, if we're going by consensus opinion, is not a movie that merits the shitstorm. For a couple reasons. Number one, Ghostbusters is not some cultural, intellectual hallmark. It's a silly it's a little silly comedy, comedy that was conceived largely by Ivan Reitman, Harry Ramis, and Dan Aykroyd way back over 30 years ago. Okay? So, as everybody, as almost every reviewer I've watched this weekend has said, enough with the fucking you murder raped my childhood shit. If this movie did that to your childhood, you had the worst childhood this side of Daenerys Targaryen. Your childhood sucked, and I feel bad for you for that. That's my pity. If it took a if a movie did that, if a movie did that to your precious nostalgia. Folks, do I have to do I have to quote what Alan Moore said again? The movies are still there. This one's existence. There, there was no multiverse crisis on infinite earth bullshit that wiped the first two movies and the outstanding 2009 video game out of existence. They're still there. The animated series still exists. You can still watch it. Go do that. But more importantly, the blowback from this is going to be that, number one, Sony proved, really as they did with the interview, that they're able to take negative publicity and spin it into gold like absolutely no one else before them. They are virtuosos at it, and that is what they did. They took this sentiment, they picked up on it, and they did something something daring. daring. 
they took a they lot, took a lot. Of excessive, of publicity excessive publicity for what is, for what by is, large, by large, large, a very average movie. And they went and fed the trolls. And that begat more. And that made the supporters more defensive. And it pissed off the trolls even more that they kept talking about it. And that kept the fear around it going. They didn't try, they didn't try to spin it into a positive direction. They fed right into it. And everybody, everybody got baited. baited from the people who from loved people it to the people who hated it. They just kept right up with it. And as it turns out, it's not it's like not it exactly blew like the face of, of it by creating by a classic of its generation. By and large, the reviews have mostly been about three-ish stars. Something like that. Of four, if we're being generous among among some people. But everything has continued to, again, feed into that and just keep the hatred going to the point that, yeah, it it did continue to spill over into Leslie Jones being attacked being attacked on Twitter for her role for her role in this. Um. By a, a doofy man-child who has, been given, who has given himself a rope to hang himself and his money out with for years. So that's one aspect of it. But it's also getting to be painful in terms painful of the fact that just as I predicted, and, and I'm going to try not to make this into an I was right kind of thing, but but Richard Roper gave it a negative review. He gave it a fair, honest, negative review. And instantly, what was the immediate backlash to it? He was a sexist, horrible, he-man woman hater with boogers for a brain and Black tar and green apple splatter diarrhea for a soul and anything else to the point where he had to go and actually post his own YouTube response saying, you clearly didn't listen to anything. You can also clearly go back and see that I'm actually a fan and have positively reviewed other stuff by everybody who was in this movie. I love Paul, I love Paul Feig. I I love Kristen Wiig. I love Melissa McCarthy. It just wasn't a good movie. Ivan Reitman himself spoke up and actually said, said, he said, I don't really think the problem people have with this movie is necessarily entirely, and I want to stress that, entirely the gender issue. He said, in large part, I think it's due to just the fact that people are sick of remakes. They're sick of seeing nobody have a better idea to bring to the table than just here's something that was 100% fresh and organic over 30 years ago when somebody, when somebody first proposed it. And it turned into this cult classic that people have loved and kind of passed down to their kids for decades. And now I want to do this my way. Which I kind of, which I kind of get, and I'm gonna kind of use that as a way 
to feed into this and away from pointing out that the review culture is not really doing this movie any service, at least not as far as in print goes. Um, first off, what I would say is to keep in mind that the difference being here is that the reviews on YouTube are mostly coming from fans, basically. Yes, there are people with monetized channels, and this is what they do for a living. But the whole thing about the culture of YouTube entertainment reviewers is that largely what they are, I, I want to say I think it was Alice that actually referred in this way, is they're fans with cameras. That's what they really are. They're not people who are looking down their noses at this as, as, as critics who are strictly paid by somebody else um, or who, you know, like Nerdist so often, so often does in particular, just to cite one, is, you know, keeping their words soft and sweet so that a valued source or resource doesn't make them eat them later. Um, it's, it's the whole reason why I've often joked that I will not trust anything that IGN says about a movie, TV show, game, comic, or anything because they've been bought and paid for so many times over the years that the bottom line of their reviews might as well have been check cleared, 10 out of 10. Uh, but from YouTube, you're getting that honesty from regular folks who are just telling you straight up, this is what I liked, this is what I didn't like, with a few exceptions. Again, you're going to find hate mongers out there who, yes, are going to tear into it because somehow they have a major, a major bug up their ass about the fact that it's four ordinarily very, well, correction, three ordinarily very funny women and Melissa McCarthy who are taking on something they hold dear. When it comes to print publications, often what you're getting are a lot of people who are looking down their noses frequently from some kind of real high and mighty angle. I even read one that took the movie to task because it wasn't tackling any major, any major women's rights or women's health issues or, or, or issues of equality. It's Ghostbusters. Did were, were were you expecting that at some point Slimer was going to have to be told that no means no? What what really were you anticipating? <laughs> um, it's from the four women and the guy who made. I, correction, what? We're trying. Yeah, it's basically from the minds who brought your bridesmaids. <laughs> Um, the, the, the movie, the movie that made a joke about bleach assholes, and had Melissa, had Melissa McCarthy shitting in a bathroom sink. Were you hoping for Norma Ray? <laughs> Just fill, fill me in there, Washington Post columnist. What were you going for? Um. Which is why, in all honesty, I'll, I'll trust the YouTubers every single time. 
I, I mean, just about every single one with a few exceptions because I've kind of learned to pick out who are the ones who are going to play up the shock value and, and everything. But I felt like the ones I got there were the honest ones. So if you got to go somewhere for a review to watch or to take in in any, in any form to find out whether you want to see this movie, I would say go there and leave the blogs out of it because the, the blogs are still baiting the fedora-wearing neckbeards for clicks like months and months and months after the fact. And for that matter, just bravo to Sony for playing everybody like a Stradivarius, but just stop buying into it, folks. Anyway, Mark, uh, anything else you'd care to add? No, um, a lot of what I had to say with regards to the film and how it was covered, Winfrey and I um, should have shared our opinions last night, so I wanted to make sure you you got what you needed to say out and, you know, uninterrupted. But, I mean, you know, you said before I came across as over the top. Um, you know, I, I can't help how, how other people see me. My honest-to-God honest opinion of the movie was I liked it. I was, I was entertained in some ways. I thought it was better than the first one. I'll, you know, talk about that last night, and I'll talk about some of the issues I have with, with the first one tonight. Um, but I think overall, I said, and now it's over, and I can move on with my life. <laughs> and we're done well, here. And, and, I, and I didn't mean to come across as mean-spirited. I, I just, from the, from the moment I read your status after you came back from it, I went, <laughs> it was just so glowing. <laughs> and, I'll give you this. I'll give you this. And, um, and this, and this uh, I'll give you as a fair criticism. Um, I'll absolutely own up to the fact that I was pre-seeing the movie cheerleading this. But this was my own... Because you have to remember, you're a little bit more in tune with the, the internet culture than I am. Um, you know, I have my reviewers that I like too, but like I, don't, like I said last night, I don't go on Reddit, I don't go on message boards. I tend to shy away from the shared thought internet culture in and of itself because I couldn't even take the 411 comment board. You know, <laughs> oh alone. God, God, Mark, you you know as well as anybody that that way lies madness. Yeah. So I I, I built sort of a, a shelter of you know around myself and said you know I, here I am safe. And with both Batman v Superman and with Ghostbusters, um, this this slime of hate reminiscent of Ghostbusters 2 impeded my impenetrable fortress and I was forced to deal with the trolls of the world which I do not want to do I, I already deal with enough madness in my life I don't want to deal with these people and um, I was mad I, I was mad at a lot of the reactions unnecessary reactions you know women can't be heroes that kind of a thing and so did I unnecessarily inflate awareness of the movie? Oh, hell yeah, I might as well have been working for Sony. Um, did I cheerlead the movie? Yes, but, there, but, but there's another small aspect of this, and then I'll, then, you know, last words and we'll move on. You know, to know, to know a few personal people, I'm not going to name them at this point because it's pointless, but there are a few personal people within my little sphere of uh, podcasters and bloggers who this is the worst piece, who hadn't seen the movie, it hadn't even come out yet, and with uh, this is the worst yeah. ever, and Melissa McCarthy, anyone who likes Melissa McCarthy should, should die, and anyone who, literally, 
this is what it said. Oh yeah, you, know, you, you don't you don't even you don't even need a name. I'm, I can already. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know but, you know what I'm talking about. But anyone who likes Melissa McCarthy should die. Anyone who likes Ghost, the new Ghostbusters should die. Everyone should die. Paul Feig should die. And it was like the more I heard stuff like that, the more I the more I had to you know get my fat ass into a pair of tights, throw on my cape, and fight back. And I'm well, so exhausted. He, but this is, but <laughs> so this is another way. But this is another way that all the really childish bile has also spilled over into how the movie's been covered. And again, it pains me to say I was right about this, but it's just as I predicted. And it's the fact that if you like the movie, you know, you're butt-fucking someone else's childhood. No reach around, no lube. You are just going in raw and just giving it to just giving it to him colon deep. I, I said um, something very similar to what you said last night. I said, if your childhood was ruined by a remake of this movie, yeah. you need to reevaluate your entire life because yeah. it's, it's to, going off the rails. Yeah, to which, uh, to, to those people, I will, I will say, take your melodramatic bullshit and get fucked. Okay? Yeah. Um, if, if you have such a problem with what someone else likes, that, to give a real-world example, you feel the need when you see that Lindsay Ellis tweets out, I didn't think it was that, think it was that, I forget what Allison said or what she said, that either that she didn't think it was that bad or she thought it was okay, one or the other, something mildly positive about it. If you feel the need to see that, and that sends you into a flare-up of sending rape and death threats her way... Oh, Jesus. I am sorry. You were, well... And to a, to an extent, I don't I don't know Lindsay personally, but I know people who have known her, and I know that she's been getting stuff like that off and on since she started making videos on the on the internet way back in the early days of uh, Channel Awesome. I don't know how people what do. It. I mean, I've, I've been accused of being a tad sensitive, and I and no one generally threatens to kill me on an ongoing basis. I don't know how. Oh, anyone, right. Because I. Well, I right. I get unfairly criticized. I'm ready to stop podcasting. <laughs> you know? um, My God, the well, get but, on these. But but that's but but that's one side one side of it. You fucking man, children, go get goddamn stuffed, okay? If someone else likes something that you don't, go check your vital signs for proof that for some reason you are still alive. <laughs> but on the other hand, on the other hand. As I said before, everybody has a right to like what they like. Everybody has a right to dislike what they like. As long as somebody dislikes it and is not being personally vile or destructive or hateful to someone to someone else or going off on a string of absurdly prejudiced statements about the limitations of what women or minorities or gays or anybody else can do in entertainment, put your fucking bullet back in your fucking shirt pocket, Barney Fife. Okay? Just because someone doesn't like something that you like doesn't give you the right to assume without clear evidence otherwise that they dislike it just 
because of a narrow-minded prejudice reason. Sometimes some people just don't like something, and it's actually because of its own merits. And the problem is, when you all get so goddamn defensive, anytime somebody makes a measured negative statement about something, which is what critique sometimes has to be, you're continuing to, you're not helping the problem. You're not helping the issue of fairness because then you're feeding into a culture in which eventually you're risking making people afraid to be honest about something because they are, because they are worried about backlash. Because they don't want to be harassed just because they didn't like something that everybody else liked and they're willing to say something to the effect of, okay, yes, it's great that we have a movie that is championing positive female role models for today's young girls. That's wonderful. But can we please get that in a better movie? Because this wasn't good. You're not helping, trying to help. You're not going to get anywhere by shouting people down. Okay? The fact, the simple fact is, well, okay, I'm not even going to call it a fact because, I'm, because, again, I'm basing this on reviews of a movie that I haven't seen. If I'm to go strictly by consensus, you're doing this over a movie that is going to go down as being average. Imminently forgettable well, but, consensus. Uh, yes, by and large. Thank you. That, that's imminently forgettable. That's not going to go down as being uh, particularly striking or groundbreaking, or groundbreaking except for the fact that it swapped out the original all-male cast of a franchise in a new universe for four women. For, but the result of what you got was what most people wrote off as what would be considered an okay Saturday Night Live sketch about Ghostbusters. Okay? That's what you're all getting in an uproar about. It's a movie that in itself, based on its quality, just doesn't fucking deserve it. So let the people who like it, like it. Let the people who disliked it Again, provided they're, provided they're not causing trouble for anybody else, go ahead and dislike it. And in the meantime, motherfuckers, no movie is worth making a death threat to the people who made it. <laughs> All right, we're ready to move on? I'm ready to move on, sir. Sweet. Ghostbusters, 1984. <laughs> um... We have, uh, let's see, where are we on time here? We have about an hour and 15 minutes uh, before we go into the overrun, which could run anywhere between five minutes and 55 minutes. Who knows? Block Talk Radio. It's a mystery. Um, So I I don't know how much pre-production stuff you've got for this, um, but uh, this um, one one of the things that struck me about Ghostbusters, uh, looking back on it, you know, was just the 
the thing that makes it succeed and the thing that I think people tap into was the personal chemistry between Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold mm-hmm. Ramis. And that came out of the fact that Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd worked together on SNL. And you had um, Bill Murray, Ivan Reitman, and Harold Ramis work together on Stripes. There, there was a familiarity there between them. And it came through on this. And I don't know... I think almost any movie that, that, that they would they could have gotten together on and put their hearts into would have captured the hearts and imaginations of other people. I think it helped that this was about ghosts, though. <laughs> um, you want to give me uh, the pre-production stuff real quick? Well, yeah, sure. Well, I, mean, sure. I mean, there are some times when you watch a movie that you can tell that it was it was created just entirely with its principal performers explicitly in mind. It wasn't the case of write the movie and ask the casting questions later. Um, And such was the case with Ghostbusters. As you mentioned, as the principal parts came together for the final product, you had a bunch of people who were already well and truly familiar with one another between Ivan Reitman, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, uh, the hell, Dan Aykroyd and Rick Moranis uh, were both very familiar with one another from their SCTV days, uh, where Moranis had his first, re- had his arguably his biggest breakout as a comedian. Um, but in this case, what we have here was a movie that turned out in its finished product very different from the way that Dan Aykroyd originally conceived it. And that was as a vehicle for himself and John Belushi to follow up on the Blues Brothers. Uh, In fact, uh, it wasn't even originally going to be called Ghostbusters. It was originally going to be called Ghost Smashers. Get ready for this because part of you are because some of you are going to be thankful that we got what we did in 1984, and the rest of you are going to be asking, oh, my God, why are we not funding a version of this now? (laughs) Ghost Smashers was originally going to be about Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi wielding magic wands and battling giant ghosts through time, space, and other dimensions. Oh, and also being decked out in SWAT gear the entire way. Uh, Dan finished the script. He brought the treatment before Ivan Reitman, and Ivan and Ivan proceeded to read it, crunch the numbers in his head, and probably tell him something to the effect of, "Boy, what special kind of stupid are you?" Basically, telling him that it was that its budget made it absolutely unfilmable. Therefore. Ultimately, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis would then spend weeks in a Martha's Vineyard bomb shelter. Yes. Really? No, seriously. Stop laughing. That's where they wrote Ghostbusters. Overhauling the script somewhere between May and June 1982. Unfortunately, tragedy would strike right around right around this time, in that more alterations would become necessary after John Belushi passed away due to a drug overdose before, screen, before the screenplay play could be finished. They then had to play a few more counts of, rounds of casting roulette when John, Candy, when John Candy was originally supposed to play Rick Moranis' role of Lewis 
but couldn't commit and had to be recast. Now, here's one that I'm not going to go too far in depth in because there's actually a lot to this that I'm going to have to dive into when we get to talking about Ghostbusters, the video game. Gozer was not originally the main big bad of Ghostbusters. As a matter of fact, that was going to be Paul Rubens as a very smartly smartly dressed gentleman by the name by the name of Evo Shandor, who was supposed to, supposed to essentially be Gozer, Gozer's destructor form. But he, I, I got to kind of read my own writing here. Um, as Gozer's original, as Gozer's original form. Uh, Yes, I'm sorry. Between all the bullet points and everything, got mixed up. Paul Rubens was supposed to play a gentleman by the name of Evo Shandor, who was supposed to be presented as Gozer's original form to the Ghostbusters. However, uh, due, I believe, to scheduling conflicts, I think he had to be subbed out in the form of in the form of Yugoslav Slavmarvel Yugoslav Yugoslav Marvels for glory of for glory of Kazakhstan, um, Slavica Jones. Uh, finally, one last little one last little casting note is that if anybody got royally screwed in this mer- movie, oh Lord Almighty, it was poor Ernie Hudson, already a well-established performer. Um, he was actually promised to promised a role as a fairly hard-nosed Air Force demolition ex- demolitions expert who would play a pivotal, pivotal part in the story. Being so fond of the role, he volunteered to take the part for about half his usual salary. He then got a script the night before shooting began that slashed his part because, per Ivan Reitman, the studio supposedly wanted to give more screen time to Bill to Bill Murray, Peter Venkman. Ouch! It's a wonder he came back to play Winston Zedmore two more times. So, ultimately, how'd it do? In a word, goddamn! It premiered on June eighth, nineteen eighty four, in one thousand three hundred thirty nine theaters, and grossed. million domestically over its opening weekend for a total of $23 million for its first week. It, for a time, held the number... It held on to the number one spot at the box office for five weeks straight until Purple Rain ultimately knocked it off after seven weeks. For about a week was number one again. On a $30 million budget, the movie ultimately made $295.2 million worldwide, 1984's second highest gross behind another legendary 80s comedy we've covered before, Beverly Hills Cop. Um, it also received, it also, believe it or not, managed to receive two 1984 Oscar noms. However, it lost Best Original Song to song to The Woman in Red, and it lost the best visual effects to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So, ultimately, Mark, tell us a little bit about this story that spawned a franchise, that spawned a sequel, spawned a couple video games, most of them bad, one good, and then 
spawned a movie that made a bunch of people mad. <laughs> All right. So what we have here are three scientists. You have uh, Bill Murray's uh, Peter Bankman, Dan Aykroyd's Ray Stance, and uh, Hal Ramis's Egon, Egon Spangler. Uh, they are working, they are studying, they are doing things at Columbia University, and they are their characters in a nutshell. Peter Bankman is a, uh, he's a scoundrel, <laughs> he's a womanizer, he's using his powers uh, and his position to hit on uh, young women, that's the first thing we see him doing. He's a cad, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, you have Ray Stance, who is uh, you know, just in love with the paranormal. And Egon Spengler is really the, the overall brains of the entire outfit. He's sort of the Aspie um, genius of the bunch. They are uh, accused of being poor scientists. Uh, after an encounter with a, with a ghost in a library and a conversation about an idea of creating uh, the technology to capture a ghost, they are removed forcefully from Columbia University, and that is where they get the idea, when they get the idea to go into business for themselves and become a uh, paranormal uh, extinction, hunting and extinction service. Um, they rent a firehouse, they uh, build the equipment, none of this you see other than the firehouse bit, by the way, it's one of the issues I have, but uh, they rent the firehouse, the equipment appears out of the ether, um, and we have two tracks uh, at this point. You have a you have a slower track, which ultimately leads to the, uh, the the conclusion of the movie, and then the much quicker, much more fun track of them actually being Ghostbusters. So on the slow track, you have uh, Dana, played by Sigourney Weaver, whose, whose apartment is being haunted by a demon named Zool. Who she will eventually be possessed. Sorry, uh, who she will eventually be possessed by. Her neighbor, poor bastard, who keeps getting locked out of his apartment, played by Rick Moranis, Louis Tully. Um, he will eventually be possessed by Vince Closer and uh, Closer, Closer, uh, and they will eventually come together and they will bring forth Gozer, the Gozerian. And we'll find that out later. Um, her first experience with Zool was Zool is hanging out in the refrigerator. That is what sends her off to go fetch the Ghostbusters. And this sets off a subplot of uh, Bill Murray's Peter Bankman wanting to get into her pants for the entire movie. For no other reason than she has a vagina. She happens to be attractive. That's literally the sum total of that relationship. Good grief. Um, on the other side of the track, they... Uh, but you actually do see them at least hunt one Ghostbuster, and then they do the money and time saving montage, <laughs> um, which is which is funny to me. Uh, so they, there's an elongated sequence of them actually ca uh, hunting and capturing a ghost. This is of course the um, famous Slimer. Um, the, this this has a run of repeatable jokes and quotable lines. He slimed me. You know, now you know that, that's what you get for sliming a guy with a proton glider, <laughs> a positron <laughs> glider, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they eventually capture the thing. They make a point of saying this is not an inexpensive endeavor. Um, they are successful. And again, we have the time-saving montage of where you will not see another effing ghost through this entire movie until the end sequence. 
what you what you will see is cut together footage of them walking out of various places in New York City with a smoky trap. Um, <laughs> you have shifting and yet it works. Yeah, um, it tells you what you need to know. You know, doing more with less. Um, I, I think if you were to, if you were to, if this never existed, it just sat in a drawer somewhere and someone sort of dusted it off at Sony and said, Hey, we need a hit, go through the drawer and see what we haven't made yet. And this was sitting there. That whole sequence would have been shot after shot of them actually capturing a CGI ghost. Um, and you would have got what we, what we did get. Um, but back then, 1984, if they had tried doing that with a bunch of puppets or with a bunch of car- you know, cartoon animation, it would, you know, it would have made the budget skyrocket. So, you know, they did the right thing overall. Um, Definitely. Not the most, Definitely. I don't know if it's the most visually stimulating thing in the world, but again, as a, as a, as a storytelling element, it works. Moving on with the plot. Um, so like I said, you have intercut with them dealing with, uh, capturing ghosts and becoming uh, uh, successful. You have the ongoing um, growing strength of Zul trying to possess Dana. And then we have the real villain of this movie. The hell with Gozer. Gozer does nothing. Fucking David Bowie lookalike. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear nothing about no Gozer. Zul, the dog. I don't care. The real villain of this entire movie, Walter Peck. Oh, goodness Walter fucking Peck. Mr. Pecker, my name is Peck. He comes, he comes representing the EPA, and he looks around and he says, you know, you guys are breaking all kinds of regulations here and rules, and I don't necessarily believe that you're actually hunting ghosts, so what are you doing here? And Bill Murray in so few words tells him to go sit on attack. Not literally, but that's essentially what you get out of that scene. So he comes back with a warrant and someone from um, the electric company, and they, they, you know, there's a, uh, there's a dueling, um, <laughs> there's uh, the, an argument that ensues, which ultimately ends with them turning off the containment unit. This is the sign. This is the sign that says, now we we'll get into the third act. Um, so all the ghosts that they subsequently caught are now released into the air. Uh, this allows for um, Zool and Vince Corco to get together. They do. They they make with the uh, the horizontal mambo. This brings forth <laughs> Goza. In the meantime, um, because because of what's happened here, the Ghostbusters are arrested. This gives them an opportunity to expo- to uh, give some expository um, dialogue about. Uh, Ivor Shandor and how the building that Dana lives in is actually an antenna used to bring Gozer from her dimension, et cetera, et cetera. So, a lot See, of going if, on if there. I may, if I, if I may interject briefly, yeah. I suddenly I now am starting to change my mind about having a kid just so I can one day show a small child this movie, have them ask, Daddy, where did Gozer come from? And then I can say, well... When a key master, when a key master and gatekeeper love each other very, very much. Yes. Little stop motion humpity bumpity. Yeah. Um, all right. So the, you know, there's a, there's a pissing contest that occurs in the mayor's office, um, and the mayor can't. And nobody can deny there's not, there's actual ghosts now. Paul Peck's got no leg to stand on, and the mayor says. Ghostbusters go go save the world. 
Um, they go to confront uh, Gozer. They are nearly buried underneath the streets of Manhattan. They survive. They w- <laughs> There's an extended sequence of them walking upstairs. You can't make this movie anymore. You can't do a sequence <laughs> where they're just walking upstairs. And Bill Murray says, tell me when we get to the 20th floor, I'm going to throw up. Nobody will stand for it anymore. They they, they have to take an escalator. The escalator has to, and the escalator has to blow up and shift them into another building, a la Fast and the Furious. Anyway, um, so they finally get there. Uh, They confront Gozer. So you know, out comes Ziggy Stardust, and um, they they shoot their they shoot their positron gliders at her. Uh, It doesn't work. She she disappears into the ether and she says, well, I'm out of here, but the destructor is coming. Choose the way in which you wish to die. Uh, they all, you know, they all uh, say, oh, we, we get this game. We'll think of nothing and that'll solve the problem. And Ray goes, nope, I like the <laughs> he, he thinks about this. He thinks about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And now comes the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man who, just, who starts destroying the city. Uh, lots of funny dialogue here. Egon saying, "I'm scared beyond the capacity for reason." One of the one of the very funny lines. And they figure out, you know, set up payoff. Earlier in the movie, they said, "Don't cross the streams; you'll cause an explosion and everything will die." Egon says, "Hey, now if we do it though, it'll it'll reverse the portal and everybody will go through it. Uh, this will come to an end and we'll save the city." They do. It does. They are heroes. That's Ghostbusters. Congratulations. You have completed a great movie. <laughs> um, I think here's my issue, and, I, and, I, and you might have picked up on it in the way that I described this movie. I feel like the whole plot of Zul possessing Dana and uh, Vince Clortho possessing Rick Moranis them coming together and then bringing out Gozer just happens because the script says so. There's no one pushing it. There's no one trying to make these things happen. I don't understand. It's never made clear to me, at least, why now? Why not yesterday? Why not tomorrow? Um, it just, Zul just shows up one day, you know, Uh-oh. in the meantime. Just, just wait until I get around to describing the game. Okay, so a lot of that comes out. Okay, but, but you know, and I, and I say this all the time, um, and, and this is, you know, with the, with the utmost respect, there, had, there was no game at this point. So all you no, have no, 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 no. I, no, I, I get that, but I, but I want you to also keep in mind that one of the big things that really, well, I don't want to say necessarily entirely unique, but extremely eminently rare, among uh, tie-in video games is the fact that the 2009 game drew upon a lot of concepts from the first two movies that ultimately had to be left on the cutting room floor, and it ended up serving as a way of tying them both together, really kind of bringing the curtain down on this whole on this whole saga on the original on the original team and doing it while adding a sense of cohesion to everything mm-hmm. else. I I under I understand what you're saying about about how flawed it is. Um and to an extent I would I would write that off a bit to the fact that 
well, let's just face it, writing in the 80s was not nearly as tight <laughs> as it it's is now. Because the, go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought you were done. Well, I, I was going to say, just in brief, just because uh, I believe the standard of critique and expectation has kind of advanced up to the point we're at now to where, uh, no, you wouldn't necessarily be able to get away with that some something like that today because you would have some smart-ass YouTube channel like CinemaSins and, <laughs> and a million other online pundits who would be absolutely licking their chops waiting to rip into the plot holes and unwilling as audiences were back then to just kind of sit back and go with it. Sure. And, and that's, and I think, I, I think if you examine the narrative, you, there's no escaping it. It's a weak, it's, it's a weak narrative. You have, it's almost as if there are two trains starting off at the same, two trains leaving Chicago at the same point. Now um, you have two trains carrying parts of the plot and they just happen to meet in the third act with no rhyme or reason, just that they, that's just how they got there. Um, in terms of even a villain, Gozer doesn't do anything. Gozer shows up. I, I mean, uh, you know, makes a, makes a, some, somewhat of a speech, calls, and then calls upon an even worse villain. If you, if you were to rank the villains in this movie about, you know, villains doing villainous things, Walter Peck is the, is the worst villain in the entire movie. I wish there had been more Walter Peck. <laughs> okay, I wish they had almost set him up from the beginning, um, and had him, you know, carried out through this thing instead of, you know, basically two scenes and and he's then summarily dismissed. You know, good good day, sir. You have done what you came here to do, and introduce us to the third act. Um, I wish they had woven him more into the plot. Um, you have Zul, who is trying to possess Dana, but it isn't as if, like. You know, they introduce Zul that tries to possess Dana and, and, and something happens to stop it. He's just taking his sweet time for some odd reason. <laughs> like, well, I'm not really needed until the third act, so fuck it. I'll just hang out in the fridge and, and uh, I'll, I'll disrupt the dinner party and, you know, and I'll do, you know, and I'll just hang about. Um, it, it's, it, like I said, there's, there's, no, there's no clear cut other than tech. There's no, there's really no clear-cut villain driving the action of the movie. Things just happen. That's not really great writing. The the thing that makes it, the thing that makes this great, and the writing that makes it great, is actually is the actual performances. And it's so funny because people are criticizing Bill Murray uh, in this new one. I don't want to keep talking about the new one, but I but I have to make this comparison because it's it's about it's about him as an actor. They're like, oh, my God, Bill Murray doesn't look like he wants to be there. Okay, number one, Bill Murray didn't look like he wanted to be in Lost in Translation either. <laughs> okay? No. Bill Murray, if you look at most of, what was most of Bill Murray's career, he looks like he doesn't want to be there. I feel like he, you know, like, like he wanted to make Caddyshack and maybe a handful of other pictures and everything else. It was like, get up, Bill, get up. You have to act now. Oh, God. Um, he's just there doing shtick. You know, he's, uh, he's as committed, and this is my, my perception of, of his performance. Bill Murray is as committed to that character as he was to any of his Saturday Night Live characters, as he was to any number of films that he did, which was, come on, do shtick, be a cad, and be funny. 
and Wolf well, and, and 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 let us bear in mind one of the one of the stories of Bill Murray's career behind the scenes was Bill didn't really like just about anybody. <laughs> um, uh, he well, okay, fine. If you're gonna bring up Saturday Night Live, um, he notoriously didn't like Chevy Chase. Um, uh, Bill and Harold Ramis clashed on a number of occasions. Um, and as far as his, as far as his later movies, look, by then he had reached the point where he had had such a long and storied and financially lucrative career that he didn't have to make a movie if he goddamn well didn't want to. Um, the man owns a stake in a minor league baseball team. Uh, you know, he's, he's not, he's not going out and acting because he's afraid that he's one day going to, en- going to end up dining three meals a day on fancy feast tartare. Um, he's, he's going out there and, it's, and no, he's, he's never exactly had what most people would, would call necessarily so, some kind of, of bubbly, affable personality. The man wasn't John fucking Candy, even when he was in his prime. Um, he just is who he is, and you can either accept that and you can appreciate his talent, which is immense and likely never to be seen again, or you can wonder why the hell he's not a, he's not a, gr- a grinning, noisy idiot like Seth Rogen or Jonah Hill. Um, yeah, the, the, you know, the, the simple fact is who Bill is works. I mean, I, I never noticed it until until Ben Cologne pointed it out to me. Um, he, he suggested he said the next time the next time you watch Iron Man, watch Robert Downey Jr. very closely and tell me he's not channeling just a little bit of Peter Venkman meets Elon Musk. And I thought about it for a second because I. Yeah, and, and I thought and I thought about it for about a nanosecond because I've seen that movie about two hundred fifty times. It's um, <laughs> it, it's my it, well, it's it's my favorite of the Marvel of the Marvel Studios movies. Um, and, and I went, my God, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so, well, what I was gonna say is, you know, uh, there was talk about how I think Paul Feig, um, you know, at times may have pointed the camera at his players and said, "Hey, I've got three SNL players here," and a woman who's very famous for doing physical comedy, um, go ahead and improv. And mm-hmm. regardless of the results, that's not the point. Ivan Reitman may have done the same thing, only with this trio of talented actors, it actually worked more often than it didn't. I mean, you can't tell me they wrote in there, you know, so be good, for goodness sake, whoa, somebody's coming. He might as well have broken to the Star Wars song at that point. You know, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of grist for the for the mill uh, in this movie for him to play off of, and he does. So what I'm talking about here is the improv. Um, Bill Murray just sort of you know, taking the opportunity to do shit in the movie, and more often than not, he hits it out of the park every time. It's 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 amazing to see it. And then when you say how immensely talented he is, that's an example of it. The fact that they can just point the camera at Bill. Bill can sort of take a scene and go, okay, well, I'm going to do this silly thing here, and it more often than not work. Um, it's the strength of the movie. 
Well, this the movie, picture, it, it also works because, especially when you think about the other three Ghostbusters, is you have, well, well number one, uh, one of the, critici- the other criticisms that I kept hearing about the new movie is that basically it's like they just shot a shit ton of improv and just used whatever take scene, take scene passable. Um, and that a number of the jokes then proceeded to just go on for far, 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 far too long. Um, but then what you've got in these two movies and one video game is you've got four people who really created characters and who work not necessarily because for like for, from the looks of the new movie, it looks like by the end of it, you basically have these have these four women who are all of a sudden they're basically ghost busting commandos. Um, they're, they're all these insane expert marksmen with marksmen with this tech, um, and just these jump right in, guns blazing action heroes. A part of what makes the first what makes these movies so charming is the fact that these four are really seriously inept and largely have no idea what the hell they're doing and end up um, doing more damage to the property than they, than they do to the ghosts. Whoa, whoa, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nice shooting, Tex. I, uh, yeah, exactly. And you have a bunch of people who are kind of uniquely inept but still kind of trepidatiously uh, kind of wait, kind of wading into the fray. That's part of what makes it, what makes them endearing. It's part of what makes it relate. It, it's what makes them more relatable. It, it makes them, you know, everyman, not comic book heroes. Um, I want to ask you a question. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that Winfrey and I talked about last night um, was that uh, in in this movie, a lot is, uh, uh, there's much to do made of the tech. That's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, it, how it. In the 84 version, the tech appears out of the ether. They talk about it after they're fired from Columbia. There's the bank scene. Um, there's a firehouse. There's Dana's apartment. Then they get the call to go to the hotel, uh, and they pull the shit out of the car. And that's the first time you ever see it. That's also when Egon says, don't cross the streams. Um, and they make a point of saying it's, they never test the stuff. You know, each one of us, <laughs> each one of us is wearing a nuclear uh, something around our, our backs. All, all fun stuff there. But um, I, I said it's a strength of the new one that Much Ado was made of the tech. And that you got to see the evolution of it. And you got to see them playing with it and trying it out and having, you know, and having working through their ineptness to become, I mean, no, granted, as you described it, yes, they, it goes, it, the pendulum swings to the point where like, how did you get so good at this? Um, but I don't want, I, again, I don't want to spend, I don't want to dwell on that. What I want to ask you is, do you think as I do that's one of the missing elements of this movie is that you didn't get to see more of an evolution of 
them becoming ghosts. But they, they, it's literally idea, money, then it happens. And there's nothing more to it. And I wish that there had been a little bit more of how they get to their end point where they, they confront Slimer. Uh, get, give me your thoughts on that. And you want to know if I think that would have made the first, the first original movie better? Fuck no. <laughs> Fuck no. For exactly the reasons I mentioned. is because, look, you've got four exceptional comic actors who really dove into kind of making each of these characters their own. Egon is very level-headed, very, very straight-laced to the, point of, to the point of being almost oblivious. To, to social cues, charmingly so. Um, Ray is just infectiously childlike in his enthusiasm for the for the paranormal. Uh, Bill Murray just yeah he he plays the uh, the smooth talking cad, absolutely absolutely to the hilt. Um, and Ernie Hudson is just this bewildered everyman, um, this kind of stranger in a stra- in a strange land who just ki- who just it kind of jumps in and comes along for and comes along for the ride. Uh, he's he's been kind of mocked over the years for being the only non-scientist. Um, and to be honest, no part of what makes the what makes the first movie so damn much fun, even if yeah maybe it isn't as explanatory is the fact that you get to see them with this obviously untested equipment and you get to see them just trying to be heroic with it as they go along while trying not to obliterate all of existence. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's one of the most amusing undercurrents of the first movie is the fact that God no, they're not ready to take on Gozer the Gozerian, or or a gigantic Stay Puft Marshmallow Man the size of a skyscraper. Hell no, they're not ready. They're not ready for that. It's what makes it funny. It's what makes it amusing. It's what I love about lines about lines like and forgive me. I know I'm going to get some of these some of these wrong, but but Ray when some Ray. When someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. Um, or just uh, quite, or just quite possibly one of my one of my favorite deliveries of the whole thing. Ray, what did you do? What did you do, Ray? I couldn't help it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you do, Ray? <laughs> and Ray, Ray has gone bye bye, Don. What do you got? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Just so, so much I'm, of it. I'm scared on the capacity for reason, Pete. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, that's a big Twinkie. <laughs> Just, that's, it wouldn't be as much fun if all of a sudden, by if all of a sudden by the end of it, yeah, they they were just basically these jumpsuited gunslingers with unlicensed nuclear accelerators on their backs. Um, right, that was what I couldn't think it, of a nuclear accelerator. Yeah, yeah. Some yeah. Sometimes you can overpolish something. You can over you can overdo it. You know, sometimes 
you just wouldn't love everything quite as much if you didn't love it warts as warts and all. But do do I think more more explanation and more flushing out of testing the tech with tech was necessary or would have added anything? No. If anything right. else, it wouldn't be the movie that I love so much. All right. I think that's it for the first one. I mean, it's so good. I you know, I, I, I put I put together a handful of thoughts about, you know, what I would have liked to have seen different and some issues that I had with it. But that's it. I don't want to belabor this. Um that we also have a time factor that's we're certainly eating away at. Um but for the most part the movie works just the way it is. A few improvements with the villain would have been nice. But overall, 1984 hits it out of the park. Five years later, they're sued <laughs> by everybody. <laughs> they, they are to blame. They are heroes, and they are to blame for uh, Marshmallow Goo uh, overtaking uh, Midtown Manhattan. And uh, they have gone their disparate ways. You have Egon, who's gone back to Columbia, you have Winston and, and um, Ray, who are uh, doing part-time pa- uh, parties <laughs> as, uh, as the Ghostbusters, um, which you can, tell, you can tell an adult wrote, wrote, wrote number two without any assistance from a kid because like, nobody, nobody in that group of kids was asking for He-Man at that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you don't. But anyway, eighty nine. Hell no. <laughs> no. Um, not that age, at least. In any case, uh, so you have Ray and, and Winston. The only the, the last remnants of the Ghostbusters is they're doing kitty parties and just dancing around. Uh, Ray also owns an occult bookstore, and Peter is hosting a shitty television show. And once again, mm-hmm. we have our femme fatale. We have our our damsel in distress. Uh, now now equipped with baby. Um, we start off with the, with uh, a, a New York City has an undercurrent of slime. We don't know what the slime is just yet. It'll explain that in a moment. Um, the slime uh, takes control psychokinetically of the baby uh, stroller. The stroller runs into the middle of the street. We are then reintroduced to all of our characters. Um, Dana goes. Uh, to get help from Egon, Egon brings in Ray. Ray is then tortured by Peter <laughs> to tell her what, what, who you trying to help her. Um, they all end up digging in the street uh, where the where the baby carriage stops. This is where they discover a river of slime. They are caught red-handed uh, digging up the street uh, unnecessarily, and they are then arrested and brought into court. Um, in court. They have the judge who starts screaming and yelling like a crazy person. Uh, this activates the slime. The slime then produces two ghosts that are relevant to the to the surroundings. To, uh, to the Larry Brothers. Brothers. Um, which let me take let me take this moment to to quick thank uh, Ben Cologne for the great artwork he provided for tonight's show. You can yes. see it, uh, you're, if you're watching it on if you're watching the show on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, you can you can see it also. You can see it on the Rattleism Broadcasting Facebook page. He did an excellent job with it. I still was convinced he was going to make us the Scolari Brothers. Um, <laughs> in any case, uh, the Scolari Brothers appear. They attack the uh, they attack the one lawyer, and they're going after the judge because the judge gave him the chair. And they say, you know, every all is forgiven, all charges are dropped, all fines are are are, are dismissed. 
please save me from the crazy ghost, but I don't believe it. And the Ghostbusters do their thing, and they are back. And now you will once again not see them bust any more ghosts for the rest of the movie. Okay? <laughs> you won't see a trap or nothing. <laughs> okay? This is the end of the Ghostbusters as we know it in that one scene. And poor Ernie Hudson isn't even in it. I'm just glad he got to be the, the he got to be an Oz, goddammit. Poor Ernie Hudson. He get no respect. Um, in any case, so once again, they, you have yet another sequence of saving money, time, and space where, you, where they're pulling various traps out of various locations. Huzzah! You know, did, did, have you seen this before? Yes, you have. Um, now, again, very similar to the first movie on almost beat by beat, you have the issue of, well, what's the villain doing and who is the villain? Well, the villain is Vigo. <laughs> you want other people to fucking apply to him. Uh, Vigo is a pickle. <laughs> from, <laughs> from, from, from marginally inept sort magician in Dragon Slayer to why am I dripping with goo? Oh, I, yet another thing I say constantly, <laughs> whether I'm dripping in goo or not. Um, because who doesn't? Because who doesn't need to say that at least once a day? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I prefer, obviously, 1984 to 1989, but he's my favorite character of the whole damn series. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, I, I, I absolutely live for it. You are like the buzzing of flies to him. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Peter McNichol is just, he is just so committed to the whole fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I wooed. Um, in any case... So Peter McNichols plays Janos, and Janos is our titular villain for this movie. He is he is the he is working for Vigo. Um, he's under Vigo's spell. Vigo is a painting. Uh, Vigo is a uh, a is a ghost that is trying to come back, and will, and his plan is to come back on New Year's. He needs a baby to inhabit. Um, he so he puts uh, poor Janos under under a spell, and and while underneath the spell, they make a deal that if Janos brings Vigo Dana's baby. He can have Dana. Huzzah. Yeah. A deal is made. <laughs> and a plot we have. It's actually one of the stronger points of this movie than I think the last one is at least you have a guy doing something, moving things forward, trying to make things happen. And he's hilarious yeah. at it. He's so fucking funny. Um, so there's this whole, so like I said, there's this whole plot of him trying to woo Dana and then try to get her baby. Um, this, uh, you know, another subplot is, is, uh, they address the fact that Peter and Dana had dated for a while and, you know, off screen, nothing worked. He was a jerk off. They broke up. She got married, had the baby. Then the guy left and went to London and now she's single just in time for a sequel. Uh, so they get back together (laughs) over the course of the movie their relationship starts to spark again. Um, a lot of the movie is dealt with the mystery of the slime and what it is. And this is what I thought was fun about it. Um, and why I was talking earlier about, you know, I would like to see, I would have liked to have seen some work on, on the equipment. You get to see, instead of work on the equipment, they're experimenting with the slime. They're doing science stuff, which I thought was really fun. So all of the stuff involving the slime in this movie, uh, I, I think works. Um, you know, they, they have their sample there's, there's sequences where they're talking about what they've done as far as experiments. But they, you're not sleeping with it, are you, Ray? Um, 
you know, <laughs> this, they, they play, they play music. They do the bit where, you know, Peter fakes like his hand got bit and all that shit. Um, this pays off later on in the movie. One of the things they, they bring up about the slime, it was one of the things they realize is that it is congealed, it is congealed negative emotion, essentially. Now, I'm going to just stop here and ask a question, and it's kind of a yes or no, or did, did, did you see it or didn't you, Sean? Because I've always struggled okay. with this. It seemed like the slime was one thing happening in the movie, and Vigo's plan was another thing. And I don't, I, I never really understood how they were related. They come together at the end as, as the slime ends up protecting him from the Ghostbusters and all that, and then they have to go get the Statue of Liberty, blah, blah, yeah, but um, I never really understood how they were connected in any other ways that they just were existing at the same time. Because what they're talking about is this slime congealed out of, out of the ether from negative feelings. And what we the, the slime, if you follow the rules of what it can do, when agitated enough, it can bring forth a ghost. And it's never really explained. Did Vigo know that? Is Vigo taking advantage of something that just happens to be happening in New York? Did it have to be on New Year's? I don't, none of that is really explained clearly, in my opinion. Well, I mean, that was my, that was my impression, was that that was why Vigo chose this opportune time to come back, was because he was, aware of everything that was going on with going on with the slime and he realized yes this i can manipulate this i can make okay. i can use this to my i can use this to my advantage and it didn't it wasn't necessarily something that i felt i kind of needed to be beaten over the head with okay um they do try to explain it somewhat in the mayor's office but that whole conversation and set of, set of dialogue goes off the rails and before the, anything of value is said they are carted off to the to the site um mm. anyway so uh the ghostbusters are trying to investigate this line they they're also at the simultaneously in trying to figure out uh how vigo uh, is related to Dana and the, and the baby carriage and all of that. All of this leads to uh, the culmination of the movie where the slime starts to erupt, basically. The slime erupts, and then time has come, Vigo is coming, Shianos has got the baby, we got a potty. Uh, the, <laughs> the Ghostbusters show up, uh, the slime is protecting Vigo, they go, um, they, ha- they have now positively charged slime, they take it to Ellis Island. They, they, they give the Statue of Liberty a good dousing, and uh, they march it off to, uh, to the museum. They punch a hole in the thing. They jump down. Vigo, 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 you've been a bad monkey. <laughs> <laughs> they hose Janosch. They fire their, uh, the, the, the positron gliders at the painting. He briefly possesses Ray. Uh, then, they, then they hose Ray, and Vigo is gone and uh, everybody is saved. And that's the movie. Um, one of the criticisms of this was that it was, in many ways, almost a beat-by-beat repeat of the first movie. And I'm not yeah. going to argue... I'm not going to argue I mean, that it isn't. But I think you have stronger villains in this one. Well, I mean, it's, it's not that surprising when you consider that this was a movie that Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and Ivan Reitman didn't even want to make in the first place. They they didn't want a sequel. They felt that it stood alone just fine 
go with one movie. But ultimately what happened was Columbia Pictures kept up the pressure. And, you know, regardless of how of how those three brilliant men might feel, might have felt, uh, the results kind of speak for themselves. $37 million budget, $215.4 million gross worldwide. Um, for a year, held the biggest three-day opening weekend in history until Batman shattered it a year later. And at that point, you know, who cares if it came back to kind of mixed reviews from critics? It, it kind of did what it was meant to. I don't have a whole lot as far as craft in this one. My major, my, my major problem I've already brought up, and okay, I require more explanation. You were okay with it the way it was. We shake hands and let's move on. Um, I don't have a whole lot of other criticism about Ghostbusters 2. I think, Jan, first of all, Janos steals the entire movie. Christopher McNichol oh, yeah. is, is so funny. You know, I mean, because the Sigourney Weaver comes across as a bit dry. It's, it's the same performance from the first movie. And it's like, all right, it's a lot of this we've already seen. Um, you know, it's a lot of this. It's a lot of the same shtick from the first movie. Ernie Hudson gets a bit more to do this time, but really, the best parts of the movie are the ones with Janos in it. It's um, <laughs> just funny lines. And like I said, I like the plot of this one a little bit more than than the first one. I feel like we have a definitive villain. We have, you know, we have a plan. That's that set off. You know, that's set up right at the beginning of the movie, and we have a henchman going about making that plan happen, and it leads to a, you know a passable conclusion. Um, your thoughts on Ghostbusters two, real quick? Uh, you pretty much summed it up. Except I would add that you know in the first movie they kind of lightly teased a couple times a, a little bit of kind of. Uh, um, uh, Janine Melnitz having a little bit of a crush on Egon, and right. I would have liked to have seen him maybe stuck with that a little bit more. Um, although th- there's something delightfully and sweetfully nerdy about <laughs> about about the passion explosion between between her and Lewis. Um, yeah, poor Rick. Poor Rick Moranis. He was he was so damn good in the first one, and then in this one he he just kind of gets shuffled aside to a point with side character. Oh, oh I disagree. Um, I think anytime he's on camera, he's hysterical. He's just not on camera that much. You know, he his his okay okay I misunderstood you then. His stuff in the courtroom is fucking hysterical. You know, and you don't want yeah. <laughs> my guys could expose themselves and you don't want us exposing ourselves. <laughs> well, that's that's in part because Rick Moranis may be quite easily, far and away, one of the most underappreciated comedians of his generation. Um I I've never felt like he gets like he gets his due. Um uh, but no, he and he and poor Annie Potts just both get kind of get kind of shuffled aside. Neither of them is really given all that all that much to do, which is sad because um, Janine really was one of my favorite parts of the first movie. Um, he is beloved, and I, but, I didn't know that I, because I I mean I find her I find her her shtick funny in the first one, but it, you know but I, she was not a beloved character. To me, and years later, I would find out talking to other people how how she is beloved by everybody else. 
Um, you know, they just think like, oh, she's such a she's such a fun part of the movie, and it's like, yeah, she's okay. <laughs> you know? well, um, well, yeah, she 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 kind of stands out with the the very dry wit that she creates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially. What well, again? Especially, especially the way you kind of see it uh, subtly start to fracture a little bit when she's when she's kind of subtle, kind of delicately trying to kind of come on and make small talk to a very oblivious Egon, um, and they and they really took that dynamic and and really ramped that up in in the animated series. Um, but otherwise, no, I don't really have anything anything negative I can say about Ghostbusters 2, but I can't really say it's exactly a landmark piece of cinema. Um, if you liked the first one, you'll like the, you'll probably like the second. I can't believe how many people don't like like it, it, it's not it's not that I've seen the criticism where it's like, oh well, it's a beat by beat remake of the first movie. People just go, I just don't like it. you know like oh, it's not as good as the first one. And I'm wondering what movie they're watching. Like, I, I, I really don't I, get it. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't understand that. I, I, I could see people maybe being a bit underwhelmed by it being, um, so, so kind of rhythm perfect with the first one. But I can't really see how anybody wouldn't like it. There, there's really nothing patently objectionable. I, first of all, if you don't laugh every time Peter McNichols is on screen, I think you're dead inside. Oh God, yes! Oh, yeah. Consult the therapist. Um, I, I kind of, I, I too kind of felt bad for Sigourney Weaver because in the first one, uh, you got to see her really clearly have a very good time going from being this this very straight laced frightened woman uh, to 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 really just chewing scenery as Zool. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> are you the key master? And, no. <laughs> this is like annoying look on her face. Um, but um, but yeah. Then then from there, after 1989, uh, we got basically 20 years of rumor and conjecture and optimistic reports that something was in, that something was in the works and uh script drafts would get leaked and of course this was also the birth of the infamous rumors that rumors that I I believe I believe it was actually between Ghostbusters 2 and 2009 when supposedly Dan Aykroyd sent Bill Murray a draft for a third Ghostbusters movie and the long since debunked rumor was that uh, Bill sent it back, but not before putting it through a paper shredder. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, something really remarkable did happen that led to, to be honest, something that I can't, I, it's kind of unprecedented both in video games and movies. And I, I want to briefly thank you for kind of, letting me step in to what is my greater wheelhouse. Because while I love movies and I consider myself kind of a geek for all seasons, I, gaming is truly my strong point. Um, it's, it's my biggest love as far as entertain, 
entertainment goes. It's a fascinating storytelling medium and one that I feel never quite gets the credit it deserves. But it's rare that gaming has really presented a chance for a story told through through another channel to get a chance to really close itself and really tie up loose ends on an apropos note. But what happened was between 1989 and 2009, uh, Dan Aykroyd tried several times to write a treatment for a third movie, uh, the most famous of which is, is has been called Ghostbusters Go to Hell, which, as the title would imply, uh, involves the Ghostbusters traveling uh, traveling to an alternate version of version of Manhattan known as Manhattan. Um, through uh, toward the latter part of the of the two thousands or or the aughts or whatever you want to refer to it as, uh, a production studio known known as Zootfly uh, began development on a game on a Ghostbusters game of their own, but they skipped one crucial step, and that was getting the official rights to do so from Sony. Um, regardless, they managed to release several videos of an early build on build online, which were mostly received fairly well. In fact, in fact, not even fairly well. They got a great response from the internet, and that response in turn convinced Sony to let another studio, Sierra Entertainment, uh, partner with Terminal Reality to try to bring the game full the game full circle into something they could release to the public. Uh, this was not initially in the cards, uh, mostly because uh, Vivendi merged with merged with Activision to become Activision Blizzard, which was you know Sierra's publisher, and that temporarily stalled development right around 2008. But ultimately, everything came together between came together, and Atari was able to release Ghostbusters the video game in June 2009. Now, this was really a miracle because it's rare when you're making a tie-in that you really get extensive direct creative involvement from the people who were involved in the original material that inspired it. Uh, there are a few that I could name that turned out reasonably well. Uh, Rockstar, for example, managed to produce a video game version of the Warriors back right around the, back uh, just a few years prior that actually managed to not only retell the story of the original movie, uh, complete with the signature look and feel of the Grand Theft Auto games, but about half of it was actually telling a prequel story about the formation of the Warriors and the events that uh, led up to the assassination of the assassination of Cyrus and then the ensuing story of the movie that you end up playing out. Uh, Couple other, a uh, couple other ones. Uh, Sega, uh, back in 2012, released uh, a tie-in with Captain America: The First Avenger called Captain America: Super Soldier, which was short but a very enjoyable beat 'em up. Um, there was a 
rather a really rather good King Kong game that was that was made that managed to tell the story of Peter Jackson's remake and also expand on it just again expand on it just a bit. But this was a different animal entirely because with this game you got Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis on board to do script doctoring and to flesh out and to really completely flesh out the story and totally apropos to the rest of the franchise. And in the process, what they managed to do was they managed to inject a number of elements from the previous movies that got left on the cutting room floor and weave them kind of seamlessly right into the story that they had planned to tell with the third movie. Uh, generally speak, speaking, the whole Manhattan premise. Um, to give you a general rundown, and I'm not going to go too in-depth with talking a whole lot about uh, controls and graphics and whatnot, because we're a movie podcast first, and I want to focus on how this really plays into the franchise. Is In the story, you're playing as a newly minted fifth member of the team, um, you are a, a nameless new recruit who you know, you're given various little pet names by the team, by the team as you go, as you go along, uh, rookie, sport, greenhorn, um, cadet, uh, you're referred to as an intern at one point, um, and you're, you're a silent protagonist. Uh, you, you don't have a word to say in this entire this entire story. But that's good because one of the other pluses of this game is that throughout the course of it, uh, they managed to bring back not only Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis to reprise their respective roles as Grace Dance and Egon Spengler, they got back Bill Murray, they got back Ernie Hudson, they got back Annie Potts, William Atherton, Brian Doyle Murray. Um, they got just about everybody from the main movies that you could want, except for, Sigour- again, Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis, because, again, Rick Moranis was well entrenched into, uh, and at that point, an over-decade-long long retirement and uh, was being fairly picky about which movies he was taking, about which parts he was taking up at that point. And Sigourney Weaver, as I said, hadn't cared for video games as a medium at all up until then, but was suddenly very interested when she found out that Bill was going was going to be involved. But instead, we kind of only get um, uh, <laughs> uh, Lewis's absence is explained away by the fact that his desk at the firehouse is accompanied by a note say, by a note saying that he went home sick. And uh, Dana uh, gets kind of mentioned by name in the fact that the events, again, this is a game that serves to explain and tie together certain aspects of the first movie that weren't really entirely fleshed out in 1984. Uh, The greater story is that a a wave of, I believe it's called parapsychic energy, has exploded from the History Museum's World of Gozer exhibit um, and set off a string of disturbing paranormal events across the city. 
And this, of course, calls the Ghostbusters into action uh, to a number of, you know, going to be funny, a number of their old haunts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suck. Um, and along the way, uh, they find out that uh, all of this seems to have to do with a a centuries-old human being, but a human being very entrenched in the occult, named Evo Shandor. Um, it's all tied back to him, including the fact that the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man all of a sudden resurfaces. Um, the and as as they note while battling him, he's tra- he's tromping around the city because he appears to be looking for something, and they can't quite figure out what. Uh, shortly after that, uh, they're summoned to the Sedgwick Hotel, which they find has is arguably now more haunted than it ever, than it ever was before. Um, actually, correction that preceded the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Um, but they do return to the New York Public Library, where they encounter uh, the librarian ghost, uh, the the gray the gray lady, who it's revealed uh, was suspiciously murdered right around the time she was asked to procure a num a number of ancient rare books on behalf of Evo Shandor. Uh, what they ultimately discover is that a number of is that Shandor was quite literally the architect, as in the man who actually designed the built a number of the haunted buildings that they've encountered throughout the two movies, um, the history the history museum, um, I believe the library, uh, most notably uh, Dana Barrett's apartment building. Um, you know, the, bit, the giant antenna for ghostly energy. And it's all part of a very specific layout that seems to funnel all this ghostly energy into one, into one central point. It occurred to me while I was playing this, this sounds an awful lot like the plot of the new movie. At least what I've heard of the plot of the new movie. Um, and so along the way, as they're kind of exploring one location after another, after another, there's also one reference after another, after another to events, particularly from the first movie. The, the, the second is, is referenced, but not quite as, as diligently as the 1984 original. And, I'm going to go ahead and spoil the plot here. Um, what ultimately happens is at the end, uh, it's revealed that the spirit of Evo Shandor has actually possessed the mayor, played by Brian Doyle Murray, and the mayor has, in fact, been manipulating Walter Peck the entire time to sabotage the Ghostbusters and keep them from interfering in, from interfering in his plans. I love that idea. Um, Let's say again. I said I love that idea. I think that's great. Well, well, yeah, it it is great. And in fact, he when he appears, he is in fact holding the skull of Gozer, and references that Gozer was a henchman who failed him, as he says, twice. 
which means that, you know, obviously it was once in 1984, but that something probably happened somewhere between 1989 and 1991 when the game takes place. Um, So, as I mentioned, they managed to bring that back around and find a way to kind of make all of that from the first movie make just a little bit more sense um, and flesh it out more more than the first did. And it's referenced that that basically the whole thing with Gozer and with Gozer and Zool and Vince Clortho from the first movie, that was kind of Shandor's backup plan that he formulated centuries prior. And that this, and that this has all been in the works for, for, for over a hundred, for over a hundred years that, that he's been trying to really bring all, to bring all this together. Um, and ultimately, of course, you know, how does the game end? Well, how do you think it ends? It's a Ghostbusters game. They all um, die. <laughs> um, obviously, Shandor is repeated, all reality is saved, and just to kind of round everything out, it's ultimately decided that since they're expecting markedly less paranormal activity in New York. Um, there's really no need to have a fifth member of the team. So what they instead do is they offer your cadet um, the opportunity to open his own Ghostbusters franchise in either Chicago or Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it's quite a good, as, a, as an A.O. third movie, um, as a game, it has a few issues. Um, the controls in the presentation are outstanding. Um, it's it's very it's extremely immersive, right down to the fact that what amounts to your your health bar is displayed in terms of readouts on the back of your proton pack. Like not like not you know a graphical display of a proton pack in the corner of your screen. No, it's on your actual pack. Um, there's a lot more, a lot more new tech um, that everybody is uh, is mostly well versed in. But there's still kind of one of the hilarious implications is that everything your character is using is all brand new, untested, untested, and highly dangerous equipment. Um, That's what I'm talking about. So yeah, so yeah, so that so that kind of gets a little bit a little bit explained away. Um, the the voice acting is right on is right on par with uh, with I think just about anything in in the first two movies. Um, nobody really sounds bored or like they don't want to be there. Uh, God bless him, poor Ernie Hudson. I still feel like he kind of gets short shrift even here uh, because you know you 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 seem to hear the most from uh, Egon. Ray and Peter, and by the way, uh, for the record, Bill Murray is an absolutely rare form. It just, just, he's, he's utterly, he's utterly outstanding and hilarious the entire way. Um, 
you get a lot of, of interludes as you're walking around the, the firehouse where you get to hear, <laughs> hear um, Annie Potts engaged in various conversations on, conversations on the phone. Um, one of the bosses uh, for a real obscure Easter egg from the first movie is a juvenile slore. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that's that's one, that's actually one of the last bosses that you bosses that you face. Um, there's uh, for for some goddamn reason they decided to take the giant painting of Vigo and house him in the damn firehouse. Um, and you can you can go up and interact with him and he'll mouth off with you sometimes with rather serious stuff, but other times it's it's lines like I kid you not this is one of them. Pull my finger. I command you. Um, which, 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 by the way, yes, actually voiced by Max von Sydow. They, they, they even got Max von Sydow back for this, and it really is such a nice capstone on the entire thing. So much so that by the time I was I was done playing it. You know, between the original score and the original actors, and all the references to the original, and and the locations and everything, by the time I got done, I kind of realized I don't really feel a need to see the new movie. I, I kind of feel like that's my like that's my perfect fill of Ghostbusters, and I kind of just want to leave it at that. I, I don't again. I don't object to the movie existing or any, or anything, but that you know that that really got that really allowed them a rare opportunity to close things out the way I got the feeling they would have wanted to. Um, right down to even the character models looking the way the original cast would have looked. Like circa 1991, like about two years removed from Ghostbusters 2. Um, so, in other words, if you're a movie fan who also happens to be a gamer, I cannot recommend playing this highly enough. Seriously, it's not one of those that has boundless replay value or anything. Uh, to be honest, if you've played it once through and you've completed almost everything. Uh, for the record, there's even a couple collectible artifacts you can find in the form of um, an RC uh, uh, Ecto-1 that's apparently supposedly haunted and um, a DVD copy of Ghostbusters 1 that, according <laughs> to the game, got flung back through a portal in time. <laughs> um, but uh, by all means, um, if, if you're really still that that anally injured about the fact that Ghostbusters 2016 exists, just go douse yourself in Preparation H. Maybe add a little pink mood slime to it, if that's your thing. And then go on Amazon, plunk down about somewhere, I think it's going for about 20 bucks. Get the game, and then just settle in for a weekend and finish it. And I guarantee you, you will feel like like the original saga went out on a high note. I, I much appreciate it, Sean. I um, I unfortunately had a bad experience with the game. I got I had it for the Wii U, and I couldn't get those controls to work to save my fucking life. 
Well, well, no, well, no wait a second. I, I, I have to, I have to ask though. Did, did you play the one with the original cast, or did you play Sanctum of Sly? The original cast, as, as I recall. Oh, okay, I, I was gonna say because yeah, because that uh, there was another game that came out around the same time, uh, and got really, really somewhere between tepid and negative reviews. Um, well, I, I guess, um, definitely, you definitely convinced me to when I have a little bit of money to spend since I've rebuilt my gaming table. Um, when I have a little bit of money to spend to go out there and buy myself a cheap copy of. Uh, Cheap sunglasses. Cheap copy of, uh, of the game. Because I, I think if a Ghostbusters fan, I think I would really enjoy it. Well, well yeah, I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not perfect. I mean, it controls really, it controls really well. Um, it captures the, again, it captures the feel of the franchise, but it can be a bit repetitive, especially since they really didn't do much in the way of adding much music other than the original score, which... Uh, can really kind of start to get on your nerves after a bit, but as but as but as far as just about uh, just about everything else as a one and done experience, uh, yeah, uh, again, it's it's right up there with the Warriors as probably my my favorite movie tie-in of all time. All right, uh, I think that brings us to the end of our show. I think uh, as I I echo your sentiments from earlier in the show, and I'm going to repeat what I said last night. I wanted to do this show. I've been excited about it all day. Um, I fought back some some illness and stomach issue I'm having currently to give you the best show that I could. I always enjoy talking to Sean, even when we uh, disagree. I always it's a fun conversation, just like with you know Robert Winfrey, who I never agree with, but but a fun time is had. But I never but. <laughs> What I'm getting at here is now that we've put a nice little bow around Ghostbusters 2016, 1984, 1989, uh, the video game, I don't want to hear the word Ghostbusters for a long, long time. Amen. I need to wash myself from this whole property and pretend it doesn't exist for a while. And thank you, Internet, for that. Good grief. All right. Uh, with that said, here come the plugs. Here come the plugs. Um, next week we're off. Um, we'll be back the following week, uh, August 4th. We'll be doing the Born Trilogy. Uh, and I will try to say the words. I will try just not to say the words, I was bored <laughs> for two hours. Um, and we're doing that because the night before, Robert Winfrey and I were reviewing a new Jason Bourne movie. Uh, and then we are off for a while. We will be going on a particularly lengthy hiatus. Uh, in September, uh, we're going to be looking at some Alan Moore stuff. Uh, it'll be a joint jam between um, Long Road to Ruin and Source Material. We're going to look at The Watchmen, we're going to look at The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, we're going to look at From Hell, and we're going to look at, uh, oh God, what's one of the last things? Oh, Deeper Vendetta. We're going to compare the movies to the comics uh, and see where that gets us. That's going to be kind of interesting because I, I liked Watchmen more than, more than most. Um, I didn't, I, I was very meh on From Hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, but that was but that was but that was years ago, and 
God help me, V for Vendetta is one of the most pretentious slabs of tripe I have ever forced myself to sit through. I fell asleep on it. Um, But that brings us to October. Uh, We originally had two shows planned. Right now, uh, two entities planned. Right now, we only have one because they moved Underworld to January. So um, we're going to be doing two shows. In October, uh, we'll be splitting the Hannibal Lecter series into two shows. Uh, the first one will be October 20th, and then the second one will be October 27th, right in time for Halloween. And then I have an announcement. I know, <laughs> I know, Sean's been looking forward to this. He's been, he's twisted my arm, my nipples, and everything else on me, and he says, "Mark, you, 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 you tyrant! You always pick the movies that we, that we talk about. When are we going to get to Harry Potter? God damn it! I'm going to be an old man by the time we do this." Well. He can thank the people who put together, Warner Brothers, who put together Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, because that gave me the idea of, hey, why don't we dedicate the entire month of November to Harry Potter? So, um, because I refuse to talk about eight movies and two shows, <laughs> we, we're just taking the whole month over. We're going to do it uh, Mark, two movies per show. I'm a, I'm a bit concerned here, because I might have had my hand on your arm, but I, I'm, who the hell was grabbing your nipples, buddy? That wasn't me. Oh, uh, you you tweak them, you bite them, you flick them. That's what you do. No, I'm just kidding. I do um, not. <laughs> November third, uh, we'll be looking at the first two Harry Potters. Uh, November tenth, the second two. Um, November seventeenth, uh, the next two, which is the same week that Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them come out. We're gonna skip Thanksgiving week, um, just because I'm not doing a show on Thanksgiving, and neither is Sean. I'm sure. And then we'll come back, uh, we'll finish up Harry Potter December 1st. And uh, did I plan, oh, and we're gonna end the year, I never got a confirmation on you on this, so I'm just assuming you agree. <laughs> but we're gonna end the year, our last show for the year will be December 15th, and it will be the Three Flavors Cornetto Trilogy. I thought that'd be a nice way oh, to I'm end all, the year. Oh, I'm all for that. Um, but uh, just looking ahead into the future, because I was playing with the calendar, you know what I got ready? I got uh, ready for us in January. Speaking of video games, uh, we're gonna actually be doing a, a bunch of shows because we have to break them into several parts. First two shows, Underworld. Second two shows, Resident Evil. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, and uh, some other stuff we got planned for that year. We're finally gonna get to Friday. Uh, We'll do the X-Men prequel trilogy probably next year, around the same time that Wolverine comes out. I was, um, I got some ideas for when the new King Kong movie comes out that I want to share with you. Uh, I got that penciled in on the calendar. But my favorite thing that I got, uh, I got the Godfather penciled in for April. I figure eventually we ought to get to it. before If we ever decide to stop doing this show, I want to make sure that got done. So since nothing else came to mind, anything good for the month of April, I figured, fuck it, let's do the Godfather. Um, you know, I always wonder, I always wonder when we would get to that. Oh, that's when I have a pencil in. But Sean, and this is what I'm going to end with right here, as far as plugs go. I already have a pencil in. You can't get out of it. You're done. You you are what? legally binded to it. On May 17th, Robert Winfrey and I will be reviewing the new Barbie movie. On May 18th, Long Road to Ruin, Legally Blonde. Yes. Okay. I'm fine. 
with Legally Blonde. I actually count me among the the heterosexual males who actually thinks the first movie was not that was not that bad. You son of a bitch, Barbie, really? <laughs> just just be glad I'm not doing Long Road to Ruin the entire direct to video Barbie series. I think we joked about it once, but that's even too much for me. Um, here's the thing with that Legally Blonde. I think the kid just fell out of his bed. Um, so let me say this. I'm going to let you do your plugs. I'm going to make sure he's still alive. But there's actually three Legally Blonde movies. There's Legally, there's the two with Reese Witherspoon. Three? And there was, then there was a third movie that doesn't have Reese Witherspoon in it. She just mentioned every scene. I can't wait to watch I, it. Apparently, I zero on Rotten Tomatoes. The the Barbie the Barbie movie though I I warn you mandated reporter a comer always pays his debts. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Let me uh, get up for a minute. You go do your plugs and final thoughts here, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll say goodnight, Gracie. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. Some of that went down the wrong pipe. All right, everybody. Oh, while Mark goes and tends to the little crumb snatchers, uh, first off, thank you very much to everybody. Whether you are listening live, whether you download, whether you downloaded it, thank you so much for all the support. You make this all so worthwhile for us. Uh, by all means, check us out here on Blog Talk Radio, on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and anywhere else. Fine podcasts are sold for the low, low cost of three ninety nine. Um, Thank you to Benjamin J. Cologne for some for yet another absolutely superb title card. Um, he did it on somewhat short on somewhat short notice, and it still looks outstanding. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have him make us look so good. Um, thank you to all the reviewers who took the time out to talk about the new Ghostbusters movie this week. Uh, just to run down the short list, that is Andre Black. Black Nerd, Comic Book Girl 19, uh, Chris Stuckman, Brad Jones, Allison Pregler, my good friend, of course, um, Angry Joe, Lindsay Ellis. I'll even swallow my pride and say thank you to Doug and Rob Walker for taking the time to record another diatribe about another movie. Um, by all means, go check each and every last one of them out on YouTube. Support them. They're fine critics, and great people to go to if you just want to hear about things from a fan's perspective, if you don't want somebody looking down their nose at, things that, at the things that you love. You know, they're, they're us. They're good people. Um, in the meantime, as far as my plugs go, uh, my podcast schedule is what it is for right now. Um, I do have a couple, have two small announcements. Number one, I have a, I'm making a return to pop culture blogging. Uh, in that I have a project that I'm going to be collaborating on uh, my fellow 411 Mania alum, alum Stuart Lang, with uh, in the very near future. I'm still working out the particulars on that, but I'll have more on that soon. And also, uh, guess what, folks? Um, it's finally time. I have my own website, kind of. I'm in the process of building it. Um, it is not ready. It is not ready yet. Um, but it's coming together. Uh, it is called Codex of Cool, and I promise that I will have much more on that in the near future, but it's going to be a home to more videos, more blogging, more podcasts, uh, just 
generally my generally my little sounding board for all the things that kind of rummage around in my thinky bits uh, in between shows. But in the meantime, thank you again. Um, all of you are the reason why we do what we do. Uh, thank you for making this so this so much fun. Here's for many more shows to come. And this is Sean telling you to always geek responsibly and never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Okay. Uh, thank you, Sean. Uh, before Block Talk Radio mysteriously cuts me off, um, we got the new Dunsmere coming out this Friday. Um, as, as, as next week, uh, we'll be reviewing the new Witherscape, and Robert Winfrey and I will be reviewing Starcraft Beyond. Uh, so that's in the immediate future. Uh, if you have a chance, what's uh, currently in the in the old uh, archives is our review of Ghostbusters, uh, the Metal Hammer of Doom review of Death Angel, one of the better albums of this year. Um, and tomorrow night, uh, Source Material is doing an odd show, the Odd Friday show, instead of its usual Monday show. They're going to be doing DC versus Marvel. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, we're available iTunes, Stitcher, obviously Blog Talk Radio, Wherever you can find podcasts, I'm sure if you dial up the name Rattledge, you will find the Rattledge Broadcasting Network. For uh, Benjamin Cologne, who once again did our wonderful uh, title card art. For Sean Comer, I am your mandated reporter, Mr. Mark Rattledge. See you in two weeks with the Bond. Be well, be safe, and behave.